From 89.7 WUWM Milwaukee's NPR, this is Lake Effect. I'm Audrey Nowakowski. Today, we'll look at Milwaukee's Martin Drive neighborhood and what's made it one of the most racially diverse neighborhoods in the city. Then we'll hear from a group helping Milwaukee residents become naturalized citizens of the United States. It's a legal mechanism that individuals can use to bring their family members to the United States, but the process is very daunting, very long, can be over 20 years. It's just essentially a roller coaster. We'll learn what's new at Doors Open Milwaukee, a citywide open house happening this weekend. Whether it's a kid who gets to go to the top of City Hall and ring the bell, or somebody who visits Alice's Garden for the first time and, you know, becomes a gardener. There's all of these connections and moments that happen between individuals during Doors Open. Plus, hear music from indie psych rock band Night Moves in the latest episode of Live at Lake Effect. All that's coming up on Lake Effect. But first, here are today's headlines. This is Lake Effect from 89.7 WUWM Milwaukee's NPR. I'm Audrey Nowakowski. Thanks for joining us. One common narrative about Metro Milwaukee is that it's highly racially segregated. But what you may not know is that there are areas with no clear racial majority, places where two people chosen randomly would likely be of different racial backgrounds. One such neighborhood is Martin Drive on the city's west side. It's thriving as both a racially diverse neighborhood and one with a strong sense of community. Yesterday, we heard from residents who live in the Martin Drive neighborhood, and today, WUWM's Mayan Silver speaks with UWM Urban Studies professor Arjit Sen to learn what fosters the neighborhood's racial diversity. How would you describe Martin Drive as a place? Okay, so imagine uh, a railroad line that grows through a neighborhood. Every night, the train comes in. Every morning, it's you don't know there's anything, but there's a railroad line which divides, literally stops you from crossing over to the other side. So there's this side and that side. And there's a space in there where you live. Imagine this place made out of lots of duplex houses, which means the two two-storied apartments, one on top of each other. Imagine there are neighbors who live downstairs and owners who live upstairs, and they know each other very int- intimately. Imagine that every one of these people in this this neighborhood full of duplexes across from the railroad crosses the railroad bridge and goes to a, a factory. That was 1910's Martin Drive, okay? And also imagine, don't forget to imagine there's a pub in every corner. And then you fast forward, 1960s and 70s and then 80s, imagine those people lose their jobs. A lot of them who have by now accrued enough money move into Wauwatosa or Brookfield or some other suburbs. And imagine these houses emptied up and then absentee landlords take over. They don't live in this neighborhood. They just give people rental equipment. So the renters now don't know the other renter. The owner doesn't know the renter. It's a whole different neighborhood, right? And that's what happens in the 80s. A lot of African-Americans have moved in, but they're mostly renters. And around the same time, Hmong immigrants come in too. And um, they start living in these two-story duplex houses, but they use them differently. They actually have intergenerational families in there. Their children are out in the streets playing. They start gardening in the empty lots. A lot of black farmers are there. They're I- incredible artists who are inside the neighborhood. So they are, and then there are block, block um, leaders. So by 1990s and 2000, in response to all these terrible 
stuff that's going on in housing and in poverty in terms of, uh, you know, jobs. There are these people, artists and local people, who are now fighting to take back their world. Martin Drive does it very well, incredibly well. And um, that's what Martin Drive to me is. I want to get into some of those factors as to what has contributed to that diversity and that richness in Martin Drive in this particular west side area of Milwaukee. It's just to the west of kind of downtown, basically. I mean, like, it's not very far from downtown, and it's on the west side. What was your experience in that neighborhood? What is What has been your background in talking to people in that neighborhood and in talking to people in other neighborhoods around Milwaukee? Yeah. I mean, this neighborhood has as many problems as every other neighborhood in Milwaukee. It has the same issues of poverty. It has the same issue of crime, everything. But in uh, 2015, a park called Foundation Park uh, suffered arson. So whatever was there was burnt down. Um, There are neighborhoods where it will remain burnt down forever because the city would not come and fix it. But in this case, the neighbors got together. They, they, They met at Hafa, and they talked about how do you get the, uh, the park back. That's the Hmong American Friendship Association. Yes. Yes. And um, they involved a diverse group of people, Hmong Americans, there were black African Americans, there were um, whites, uh, and there were two actually Latino uh, guys who actually owned the two buildings right next to the park. They all got together, and they decided they're actually going to get to the city, get to... Um, Milwaukee Plays, which is a city program which works on parks, get them together, get some national um, organizations, and rebuild the park. That's no easy job. That requires you to gather together multiple times, meet each other. And all this was held together by a few of these uh, urban guardians, these incredible people who could bring people together. So that is exactly what Martin Drive is, and that's exactly the reason why it's coming back, these community collaboration and coming together in order for a common purpose. And is that when you at UWM, you were with the Urban Studies Department, you're still with the Urban Studies Department, is that when you started kind of getting Martin Drive on your radar, like, we need to look at this neighborhood and see what's happening, these people are making things happen, making movement? Yeah, that year when we were in Martin Drive, I was then at the architecture school. So uh, what we would do is we would collect all these stories. We would talk to these incredible people, ask them, what is it that you're doing? How, do you, uh, how are you stewards of this neighborhood? That was our main question, actually. What is stewardship? How do you do it? And then we would follow up after having heard their answers with a design studio, with the architecture studio. What they would do is they would work with these these community residents as our mentors, and we would build something. And that was seen as a catalyst. So if you walk down, and this is an interesting story, if you go down Willit Street on Martin Drive, as soon as you cross 35th Street, you will find that there used to be a custard stand. And the custard stands, the sign still remains, the, the outline of the sign, the structure. We went and put a walking person. It was... We just call them John. But it was, a, it was an outline of a person who was walking because a lot of these neighbors said that Willit Street is very fast. We can't cross Willit Street. And so we did this walking person, and then there were little versions of this walking person appear in various parts. It was a catalytic, catalytic art project. Well, the guy who owned the space, after we finished, we said, we're going to take it down now. He said, no, I want it up there. 
And then he, t he repainted it with Hmong motifs. Now that shows the immense pride that people have. It's not necessarily in big ways, but in small ways. It's still there. It's painted completely differently now. And Chalor, he's the guy who did this, still takes care of it. So for us, our role was catalytic. We facilitate what already exists in the neighborhood. And that is the proof of what the kind of human resources that exist in this neighborhood. Why do you think it has that strong social infrastructure? Now that's a difficult question. Yeah, because yeah. Even, even when Lindenberg looks at Chicago, he says that um, it's basically people meeting each other on a face-to-face -face basis. So, you know, when the heat wave struck Chicago a few years ago, a lot of people died. But the people in a poor neighborhood, in a poor Latino neighborhood, where people actually knew each other, survived because there was that face-to-face -face connection and people knew each other. I think that that's really what matters. And the other thing that matters and reason why we started doing what we did is history is not just the past. It's what we share in common. We All of us share our past in common. We cannot go change that anymore, but we do share it, good or bad. So history becomes a very important tool by which we could bring these people together, Hmong Americans, African Americans, black, Latino, young, old, around these common stories. What is the common story in Martin Drive? The bowling alley, the park, the garden, Harley-Davidson, the railroad, those were the stories around which people came together. So in particular with Martin Drive, what are some of the factors that are this collective history and the current factors that are going into making it be a diverse environment. Yeah, what is that we share in common, right? That histor the history that we share. The first is the space itself. It's uniquely located. It's got the, you know, the industrial, the residential, and the commercial comes together. And the, uh, and the, um, the garden, the park, which is leisure. Washington Park? Washington Park. They come together. I don't think there are many places where all these four things come together. There are very few of those. So that's number one. I think that's, that's important. And that's because of history. The second thing about history is Willit Street was the streetcar that brought people to Washington Park. It still is a very highly traveled artery. Then in that artery, if you put in places, destination spots, people stop. So that's also part of a legacy that existed. Even the terrible leg legacies of racism and segregation um, was created segregation, but it did create the uniqueness of neighborhoods. You know, part of the reason that we have such strong neighborhoods is because of the fact that lot, not all people could actually move into any neighborhoods of their choice. So that cultural heritage that exists in people who live in these neighborhoods, especially the ones who have lived here in these neighborhoods for more than 10, 15, 30 years, that memory of that space, everyday space and everyday stories is very important. If you talk to anyone in Martin Drive, even though they haven't actually seen the grocery stores on Willie Street, but they still talk about it. So what is it that they're talking about? They see the shell of the building and somebody has told them, hey, you know, this building used to be a grocery store, and they remember that. Or they sh see the 
movie hall, which is not a movie hall anymore. It's I think it's a, a paint, paint store, but they still have that story, the narrative of the movie hall. So that's actually the history, what people tell each other over and over again about these physical spaces that exist. It's very important. And there is there's something called legacy city. Milwaukee is a legacy city. It's got a legacy of history. And that story of the past gets repeated in multiple ways. We have to make use of that. And Martin Drive people have made use of that. Well, you've talked about some of the things that make Martin Drive unique and that bring people to the neighborhood. But what has caused this ability of people to be from, like we've mentioned, you know, it has one of the highest diversity indexes in the entire city. Why that place that you can find someone who's more likely different than you, than than similar? I mean, I, I think it's got to do with housing access, frankly. You can buy a good house, and it's near all these resources around you. The ability to buy an affordable house within a space where you can actually access good restaurants, grocery stores, parks, and playgrounds becomes one of the central reasons why a lot of people come in. A lot of young people have been coming in for that reason. But you also need to have the older people stay. So the reason Martin Drive is so intergenerational in many ways and like age-wise diverse is because older folks have decided that it's worthwhile for them to stay. They have resources around them within a walking distance. It's a walkable neighborhood to, to be able to stay. And they have worked hard to get those resources. It wasn't always there, by the way. It was. It's only very recently that all these resources are coming together into Martin Drive. And what are some of those resources? There's the near Westside Business Improvement District. There's the Harley offices, which are located right on the border there. Can you talk a little bit about that? So we have those two. We have Hafa. We have the farmer's market or at the market stall. We have the food space that has come up around it, the market stall. Um, we have the uh, artists working with education, the senior center. The police is also nearby. Um, so, yeah, those are the various institutions and resources that exist. So it's this institutional connection with people on the ground who are living there who are really invested in their neighborhood, would you say? That's kind of the the glue that's holding this together? Yeah, I'm an architecture uh, historian, so I think it's the place that holds it together. The institutions and people are fine, but you also need to have the setting where the institution and people work. Arjit Sen is a history professor in the Urban Studies Department at UW-Milwaukee. He spoke with WUWM's Mayan Silver, and they'll continue this conversation Thursday on Lake Effect. They'll dig into whether Martin Drive could be a blueprint for other areas trying to create a more diverse and socially strong infrastructure in their neighborhoods. That's coming up Thursday. Sunday was National Citizenship Day. That's why the American Immigration Lawyers Association is hosting nationwide citizenship workshops through September. The Free Citizenship Clinic in Milwaukee is slated for September 30th at MATC's Education Center at Walker Square. The one-day event will help eligible permanent residents apply for U.S. naturalization. 
Bridget Kuchma is a supervising attorney with Soborowski Immigration Law. WUWM's Eddie Morales asked Kuchma about who's eligible to apply and the challenges that applicants face in becoming U.S. citizens. ALA Citizenship Day is a national event. Um, it takes place each year in September. Um, it's sponsored by the National ALA Group, the American Immigration Lawyers Association, and then chapters around the country host their own local events. So um, I'm part of the Wisconsin committee for our local ALA chapter. Um, the goal for the citizenship event is to um, help empower people to become citizens and to um, submit their applications. Um, it's a free process. Um, everyone is donating their time and energy and expertise. Throughout the month of September, we are screening applicants who've registered pre-registered to see if they actually qualify to apply for citizenship. And um, then on September 30th, for those that do qualify um, and have been pre-screened, they have appointment times. They're going to come on Saturday, September 30th, um, and then we'll finalize their application. And the goal at the end of the event is to send them home with uh, essentially their application, all the supporting documents they'll need, instructions on how they will mail their, their application to USCIS in hopes of um, receiving an interview for their citizenship soon. And what are some of the challenges that people face when they are seeking citizenship? Um, when they're seeking citizenship, some challenges would be if they have obstacles or bars to um, apply for citizenship, if they haven't held their legal permanent residence for long enough, that could be one issue if they've left the country and have been outside of the country for long periods of time since becoming a permanent resident, that could be another obstacle. Um, a frequent obstacle for individuals is if they don't speak English well enough. There is an English reading and writing and essentially speaking component of the naturalization exam that they eventually will have to do. And if their English isn't um, competent enough, um, they, they will be denied. There's a second chance for them. Um, but in, the English barrier can be difficult for some folks. Also, there some folks have um, an intellectual or learning disability, and that can be an obstacle. But there are ways to overcome that with the help of mental health professionals and a certain report that people can follow. Um, more obstacles for individuals are if they have any um, they have any police involvement. There's the a five-year focus that immigration will look at, but if uh, even so far back as 20, 30 years, if there's something that, that did happen, the immigration can look back at um, those things so that can haunt people as well, even if they've, um, there's ways to recuperate and show that you've turned things around. Other obstacles are people not paying child support or not being current on their child support or having issues with their taxes. Those are obstacles that people do encounter. It just depends on the individual. Another obstacle, I guess, um, Eddie, would be just um, individuals that try to do this on their own, um, maybe shouldn't be applying for citizenship. They don't, they think they may qualify, but they don't. So that's an obstacle. The form is very long and can be very confusing. So that's an obstacle for many folks too, especially when they're dealing with these um, long and, and sort of confusing uh, immigration forms. So that's another obstacle for people. Um, the fee can be an obstacle for people. Um, it's $725. There is a fee waiver available if people qualify or have public benefits or have received certain benefits or have an income at a certain level. So but those can be all obstacles that people might be scared or um, intimidated by, but there are ways to navigate around some of those obstacles. Are there any trends that you can speak to when it comes to people coming here from other countries? Like, what are the reasons for those trends? The trend at my firm where we, what we work with primarily 
is family, family trying to reunite with family members. Um, that's a huge, huge trend. There are ways if you have a certain qualifying relative to be able to bring other family members. So that's the, that's the primary um, trend, quote unquote. It's, it's a legal mechanism that individuals can use to bring their family members to the United States, but the process is very daunting, very long, can be over 20 years. Uh, it's just a, essentially a roller coaster. Other trends um, that I see would be people fleeing persecution in their home country, people fleeing war-torn situations. I deal with many people from Sudan, from Burma, from different places in Latin America, and the United States is a, a safe haven, is a, a refuge, and so many people are desperately trying to to come here for that safety and that promise of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. So trends are just people um, wanting a better life, um, dire poverty in many, many parts of the world and the many opportunities that the United States offers. So the trend is that you know the United States offers all of these things for um, anyone who's willing to work hard enough. So the trend is that I see is as people just in desperate situations and dire situations dreaming of a life that could be better. A lot of individuals coming in at the border um, as well, seeking um, asylum, and then they hope to apply for asylum um, because of past persecution or fear of future persecution. So that's been a, a frequent topic as well this year. Can you just speak a little bit more to, when it comes to working with people, what some of those costs are and how long it does take and the nature of some of the work? The length of time I best describe it as, um, it's often said, there's a line, an immigration line. Well, that line looks, if you imagine a ball of yarn and a kitten taking that ball of yarn and scrambling it up, that's what the immigration line looks like. Um, no two lines are the same for any individuals. The line can be um, as quick as a year or two, depending on your circumstance, or it can be over 20 years depending on your circumstance. Uh, many individuals that um, I work with, their average processing time from start to finish could be five, six, seven years or more. There are, uh, no two cases are the same. So it's really, there's no way to put an exact like time frame on because each case has its own kind of processing times. Uh, what we have seen a trend um, this past year is just processing times for many um, critical cases for many individuals skyrocketing. Many individuals um, in the United States are seeking what's called a waiver. Um, if they've had one entry into the United States and they're married to um, or they have a, a close family relationship with a permanent resident or U.S. citizen, there's something called a waiver that those individuals can apply for. And we've seen in the last couple of years since COVID, those um, waiver processing times absolutely skyrocket. They're currently at 44 and a half months um, just for that one, um, one piece of the pie. And there's other pieces that individuals need to get as well. Um, so what used to take perhaps for that waiver piece was maybe a year or less. Um, that's now at 44 and a half months. So the waiting and the, um, the family separation and the uncertainty is, is just prolonged for many, many individuals. Costs, costs differ um, for every different type of case and there are hundreds if not thousands of different types of immigration cases um, so i can't really give you an estimate because each each case does have its own um, filing fee there are filing fee waivers for individuals that might qualify for that depending on what type of case you have 
there has been proposals or there are currently proposals by immigration to um, have huge increases in fees for uh, certain types of immigration, which would be um, a barrier for many individuals to apply for immigration benefits. We haven't seen that happen yet, but it's definitely something that's um, being proposed and possibly implemented by USCIS. So we're encouraging people to apply sooner rather than later in, in case those huge fee increases do, do come up. Last year, almost a million legal permanent residents in the United States became citizen. So that's that's a great um, great thing. The reasons for people to naturalize, or the reasons that I hear are varied. Um, some individuals, this is their one lifetime goal is to become a citizen. They've, this is something they've dreamed about for their entire life. Some individuals, their main goal is to um, just have permanence and to not have to go through any more immigration processes. You're listening to Lake Effect on WUWM. I'm Eddie Morales, speaking with Bridget Kuchma, supervising attorney with Soborowski Immigration Law. Another um, goal or reason that people seek to naturalize is to be able to vote in elections. That's obviously a, a big topic um, will be in the next couple of years. So we see a lot of people just want, want that ability to vote and have their voice counted. Um, some people want to serve on a on a jury. <laughs> I've heard that um, maybe once or twice. So the the freedoms and the benefits that come with being a U.S. citizen, that peace of mind, um, that's really the ultimate goal for for many folks. They they want to belong. They want to have permanence. Legal permanent residence is is a form of permanence, but U.S. citizenship is is the ultimate goal for many many individuals, and it's the happiest day. One of the happiest days besides. Um, for many people getting married, having children, that type of thing, but U.S. citizenship is equally as important. My husband, for instance, was born in Peru. He served in the U.S. military, and he became a citizen while serving in the U.S. military. Um, he speaks of, of that moment, that day, you know, many, many, many years later about um, what that meant to him and, and how proud he was to become a U.S. citizen while serving in the military. So we, we recognize that, ILA does, and because of all of those varied reasons and the, the ultimate goal of becoming a citizen, we, we put this event together on it. A lot of planning goes into it. Um, we started planning in February, March for our citizenship event that's taking place on, on the 30th. We've had a huge response from applicants already that want to hope to get a spot at our citizenship event, we are going to be limiting the amount of spots available just so we can adequately serve those that have signed up and who have qualified. We aren't taking um, walk-ins, so everyone needs to have an appointment. We do have, if someone does you know, not get that message and they show up, we have materials that we can send people home with to, so hopefully they can have some, some tools in their back pocket to apply for citizenship. Um, and then we send applicants home with a um, with a nice folder of information, USCIS has been great this year in providing study materials for applicants uh, for the citizenship test that they'll have to take. So that's great. So we send individuals home with a nice packet of information. If individuals need to apply for what's called a fee waiver, or if there's an intellectual or mental health um, issue that that might um, mean that they could not have to take the civics portion of the test, we send them home with some referrals, resources. We also um, are sending individuals home with some um, great materials or great contact information for um, literacy programs around the area that could help individuals um, study for the actual uh, naturalization test. So um, our goal is to, out of this event, is to prepare this application 
a sound legal application to send individuals home with their application. All they have to do is stick it in the mail after they leave and as well as resources to how um, for how after they leave, how they can best be prepared for their interview because we won't represent at their actual interview, um, but we send those individuals home with resources, how they can best be prepared for their for their interview. Um, their interview after they mail their application, um, there is no definite time, but lately we've been seeing most interviews scheduled um, at the local Milwaukee office in less than six months. Some have been very quick, um, like two months, but some some are longer. Again, depends on the case. And then when they when the individuals do get their interview date with USCIS, they'll need to go. We send them along with a list of what they need to bring that day. Again, their vital documents and any other um, relevant information. And then they'll have their interview um, at um, downtown Milwaukee. Um, at the USCIS office, they'll meet with an immigration officer who will test their English writing, their English reading, um, and just general conversation. And there's also a civics portion. Some individuals do qualify for exceptions to the English um, requirements as well as the civics requirements depending on their age and how long they've had legal permanent residence. It consists of, uh, typically for, for most applicants, they have to study 100 different civics questions and at their interview they'll receive up to 10 total questions civics questions um, they'll pass if they get six of those 10 right um, so that's a big part for for many applicants is just that studying portion which is why we send applicants home with resources for programs like the wisconsin literacy program that can help individuals with a tutor or different citizenship prep classes. There are other nonprofits around the area that do the same thing, which is great. And then at their interview, they'll either receive a determination that day or the officer um, will indicate that they, they need more time and they'll be receiving a decision in the mail. If someone is uh, approved for citizenship, they will receive a date in the mail to come back and take their oath ceremony. Either that will be downtown at the federal courthouse or that will be at USCIS. And that's the day they officially become a US citizen um, after this long journey that they've been on. Thank you for joining me. You're welcome. Bridget Kuchma is a supervising attorney with Soborowski Immigration Law. She joined WUWM's Eddie Morales. In about 15 minutes, we'll hear a new episode of our music series, Live at Lake Effect. But first, there's a citywide open house going on in Milwaukee this weekend where you can get inside access to buildings and organizations that are usually closed to the public. Keep listening to Lake Effect on 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. to Like Effect on 89.7 WUWM. I'm Audrey Nowakowski. Doors Open Milwaukee is back this weekend. The annual citywide open house event allows you inside access to buildings and organizations that are usually closed to the public. With over 130 participating businesses, nonprofits, and government buildings, this is an excellent chance to get to know Milwaukee behind the scenes. Lake Effect Sam Woods caught up with Grace Fuhr, Events Director for Historic Milwaukee, and Patrick Darrow, one of the owners of Milwaukee Microgreens, who is participating in the event for the first time to learn more. Grace, I want to ask you, what exactly is Doors Open, and what is the history of this event? 
Yeah. So Doors Open Milwaukee is put on by Historic Milwaukee, which is a nonprofit that started in the 1970s. The event began in 2011 and is an event that's modeled after Open House Worldwide, which is a program that invites the public to tour and appreciate buildings and architecture and design. Um, Milwaukee's event has a neighborhood focus as well that we're really proud of. And this year's event will feature 130 buildings that people can tour completely for free all throughout Milwaukee. You mentioned that this has been going on since uh, 2011, and you've added new components over time. Where like these these uh, neighborhood tours, um, the, you know, during the pandemic, kind of developed an app, which we'll we'll get into a little bit later. But what do you um, usually hear from people who have um, experienced doors open, and um, like kind of what have you heard about their experience? Either those that have done this before and are returning, maybe seeing new sites, um, or people who are doing it for the first time. Like, what, is, what are some common themes about what you've, what you've heard? Sure. So uh, one of the goals of Doors Open is to get people into neighborhoods that they might not be familiar with in Milwaukee. So a survey question that we ask each year is, did you visit a neighborhood you were previously unfamiliar with? Um, last year, 65% of respondents said that they did visit a new neighborhood, and 66% of those people said that they would visit the neighborhood again. So we're hoping that the impact of Doors Open goes beyond the weekend and that people are visiting neighborhoods again to go back to that art gallery or that garden or dine at that restaurant that they didn't have an opportunity yeah. to see. Um, we also ask if it made them feel proud to be a Milwaukeean. Not everybody who does the event is from Milwaukee. Um, yeah, it'd but be a great place to take someone who's coming in from out of town. Exactly, yeah. Um, and 83% of the folks who replied to the survey said uh, that the event made them feel proud to be a Milwaukeean. So it's neat to hear about your experience, too, um, and being a new person to Milwaukee and how Doors Open made you feel connected to our community. Yeah, and, and one thing I love about Doors Open is that every year can be different. Even if you've participated in Doors Open uh, before, um, maybe every year, there's always new uh, new places opening their doors, new new tours, new new something going on, and so you can make each year's Doors Open different. And we're actually sitting here with one of these new first-time participants, Patrick Darrow, one of the owners of Milwaukee Microgreens. Um, Patrick, can you talk a little bit about what you do at Milwaukee Microgreens and what visitors this weekend uh, can expect? Yes, thank you. Um, at Milwaukee Microgreens, we have and establish uh, a year-round indoor urban farm. And what that mm -hmm. means is that we get to grow food in the community every single week. And we get to provide that to the community every single week. We have a robust delivery program that uh, teaches people that they can eat locally with the seasons all year round. And the way that we found out about uh, the Doors Open event was from a business that we've partnered with that's down the road from us, uh, Bayview Printing Company. Oh, sure. And yeah. last year was their first year that they uh, took part in the event and had so many new faces. Uh, find out about their company, and we hope to do the same thing this weekend. I feel like you're looking at my my questions because you kind of answered the next one, but I still want to ask it anyway because I, I feel like there's, you know, you can kind of expand on that story a little bit is why you wanted to open your doors to Milwaukee this weekend. I'm, I'm sure, you know, new customers is, is definitely a draw for business, right? You're always mm -hmm. looking for that. Um, but is there, I guess maybe is there some kind of like story you want Milwaukeeans to know about Milwaukee Microgreens or some kind of like behind the scenes that you're really interested in having people understand? 
Yeah, we we are in a historic building called the Lewis Alice Specialty Motors Building. Mm -hmm. And nowadays, a lot of these large industrial repurposed buildings hide some really unique operations like ours and, and some others. And I think it's uh, something that more people should be exposed to, that you can grow food on a commercial scale or an individual scale all year round indoors. Uh, and through my own inspirations of uh, doing work with Growing Power before, mm, uh, yeah. a uh, nonprofit that used to exist, finding out about microgreens, it was something that I wanted to share with people because I found it appealing as a real solution to feed people in an urban environment yeah. and to kind of demystify the idea that stuff like that is fancy garnish frilly food when in reality it's something that you can actually grow for yourself uh, and for others. And um, uh, with Baby Printing Company specifically, that's actually what we partnered together on was a grow it uh, yourself, like at home grow kit for microgreens mm -hmm. so that people could try it for themselves. We could get it into schools and businesses even. Yeah, lovely. And Grace, this one for you, this is a big project, right? And any any project manager, you know, in any yeah. scenario will tell you, like, trying to pull off something like this big takes a lot of work behind the scenes. And I'm, I'm sure everything's not just perfectly smooth. Take us behind the scenes of what it takes to to put something like this on like are you already planning for next year now um <laughs> you're nodding your head um but yeah so what, what does it take to put on something like this yeah well definitely just in the last two weeks leading up to the event we start to get emails from owners of buildings that mm -hmm. are like hey how do i get my building on this event yeah. which i think is very cool because the first year that doors open took place in 2011 the original program manager um, George Wagner, who was a tour guide for historic Milwaukee and retired librarian from Milwaukee Public Libraries, actually had to go around to buildings kind of giving a pitch and talking about what this event would look like because it had never happened before. Yeah. And after that first year, we had 80 buildings and 10,000 people showed up. It just was like mind-blowing for a lot of Milwaukeeans. And now we're to the point, you know, 13 years later where individuals and buildings want to get involved. Such a cool story with um, Bayview Printing Company putting us in touch with mm -hmm. microgreens. So there's a lot of that at this point where it's kind of, it's a little bit word of mouth um, in organizing it, but we definitely start the process of inviting locations to participate in the spring uh, before the event takes place. And then my life consists of a lot of spreadsheets yeah. <laughs> between uh, oh, that yeah. point and when the event takes You're place. A master um, at Excel, I'm sure. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but, you know, the, the most fun part of my job is that I get to go out and visit a lot of these locations. So that's um, really a great way for me to get to know the city and um, an op awesome opportunity to kind of get a glimpse into what doors open will look like. Um, but the other big under undertaking is that we have 350 volunteers that staff mm. almost all of these buildings that help us greet and keep count of visitors so that we know how many people are attending yeah. the event. Um, so that's a huge undertaking to just assigning all of the volunteers. Um, so big shout out to my, our team at Historic Milwaukee for doing yeah. that as a collective um, and to all the volunteers that, that are out there, you know, helping us with this event. 
Yeah, shout out to volunteers, and also I, I heard a kind of a, a subtle plug there. If you're a, if you're a business or you're an organization who's listening to this and say, "Hey, I would love to get involved," uh, maybe not wait until <laughs> two weeks before the event. <laughs> don't don't, uh, don't mess up Grace's spreadsheets like that. <laughs> yes, get in touch. Um, you know, next month we can talk. <laughs> gotcha. Um, well, uh, want to end on a question for both of you, Grace and Patrick. How are you? How are you feeling about this upcoming weekend? Of, just throughout this interview, I've seen a lot of smiles and, and some kind of laughter and just kind of like excitement, it seems. But um, I don't want to put words in your mouth. How are you how are you feeling right now about um, this upcoming weekend? I, I just know I'm very excited to meet a lot of new faces um, and also see a lot of familiar customers that I've been working with now for years and be able to peel back the curtain and show them what urban farming looks like. People that live right down the road from them growing food year round and perhaps inspire other people to do the yeah. same, just like I was years ago uh, when we talked about being proud to be a Milwaukee. And that's something that, that makes me proud is to meet and work with like-minded people that want to work together and accomplish things. Mm-hmm. I love to hear the stories of people having first-time experiences in Milwaukee, You know, whether it's a kid who gets to go to the top of City Hall mm-hmm. and ring the bell or um, somebody who visits Alice's Garden for the first time and you know becomes a gardener there long term. Um, so there's all of these connections and, and moments that happen between individuals during Doors Open that I love to, to hear about and see happen. All right. Well, Grace, Patrick, thank you so much for joining me on Lake Effect. And um, maybe one of our listeners will see you out there uh, this weekend. Thank you. Thank you. Grace Hoor is the events director for Historic Milwaukee, and Patrick Darrow is one of the owners of Milwaukee Microgreens. They both spoke with Lake Effect Sam Woods, and you can find more information about Doors Open Milwaukee at wuwm.com. Did you know you can listen to Lake Effect as a podcast? Just search for Lake Effect wherever you get your podcast to download and listen on demand. You can also follow WUWM on Instagram, where you'll find videos and pictures from news stories and Lake Effect interviews. We'll take one last break and then return with some music and a chat with the psychedelic rock band Night Moves for the latest episode of our new music series, Live at Lake Effect. Keep listening to Lake Effect, the radio show on 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. This is Like Effect on 89.7 WUWM. I'm Audrey Nowakowski. Live at Lake Effect is our new music series featuring local and nationally touring artists performing in the Lake Effect Surf Shop in Shorewood. We brought the Lake Effects together along with Visionary Studios to showcase musicians once a month, starting with an interview with a band airing exclusively here on Lake Effect. Today, we're happy to host fellow Midwesterners and indie psych rock band Night Moves right out of Minneapolis. Joining us at the Lake Effect Surf Shop are John Pellant on the keys and vocals, guitarist Charles Murlowski, and bassist Mickey Alfano. Here's Night Moves performing a cover of This Will Be Our Year by the Zombies. One, two, three, four. Sun. Mm-hmm. 
Kowski from Lake Effect on 89.7 WUWM Milwaukee's NPR. We're here at the Lake Effect Surf Shop in Shorewood, and with me is Milwaukee musician and fellow Live at Lake Effect co-producer Trapper Shep. Hey, Trapper. Hi, Audrey, and we are here with the uh, cool and cosmic-sounding Night Moves from Minneapolis. Welcome, guys. Thank you for being thanks here for being in the here. surf shop. Oh, thanks for having us. It, feel, it feels right. I don't, I don't know why, but having you guys in the surf shop, it just, I think the universes are aligning and everything everything makes sense with you guys here. Yeah, so. well, I, I mean, I would hope so. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, and you are our neighbors of the Midwest, and you join us just about five hours down from I-94 in Minneapolis, and that city has such a storied musical history, you know, of course, with everything from bands like The Replacements to Prince to Bob Dylan, so how has Minnesota and artists like that informed your overall Night Move sound? Oh, man. I mean, we're all big Bob Dylan fans, and we all love Prince, and I don't know. It's just... They have a few good songs. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, but or do you feel that other musicians or things inspire you more I, than I that? can't really point out any one uh, element of their music, but you just like look up to people like that, and they set the bar really high. It makes you want to be better. When you grow up as a kid and you have like Prince and Bob Dylan in that sort of wellspring, you know, to pull from, yeah. I'm sure. That's like, well, the, these guys did it. They're from Minnesota. Here we are. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I guess there's a little bit of that for sure. Um, it doesn't hurt for sure to have that. <laughs> but, um, you know, they, they seem like they're on such a, a different level that it's tough to compare yourself. 
Of course. But y'all have such a great sound. Uh, your records are atmospheric, lush, layered, uh, just beautiful. And can you talk Thank for you. a minute about how you use the studio as sort of an, an instrument? Ooh, the Brian Wilson question, huh? <laughs> That's so on. Yeah. Well, I don't know. I mean, we, we have sometimes it gets a little hot hand with all like the tracks <laughs> that we have. So, I mean, just the multi-tracking aspect is, is the biggest thing. I feel like when I got uh, like a MacBook, my like sophomore year, I went to school Garage here. Band. You know that. Yes. UW-Milwaukee after <laughs> everything got stolen from our house. Um, <laughs> On yeah. Downer, off Downer Avenue, Bellevue? Yeah, correct? the Bellevue place. Did they take your MacBook? They took my Windows uh, laptop, but that didn't even have GarageBand on it. So once I got GarageBand, I could layer all everything that was mm -hmm. in my head. So that was kind of a game changer. So the band sort of started here in Milwaukee, actually. Very cool. How many tracks or multi-tracks was your biggest session? Just curious from my <laughs> audio editing standpoint. I don't know, maybe like 120 or something. <laughs> um, a lot of people have discussed how the pandemic and all that forced downtime. Sure. Uh, it helped some artists, hurt others, but I'm more curious as a fellow Midwesterner how the bitter cold in the winter uh, helps because for me, I tend to write more in the winter months when you're stuck inside. Yeah, And me I'm just too. curious if that, yeah, how, how that plays out for you. I mean, if it, I'm almost distracted when it's nice out. I know. So yeah. it's better when it's gloomy and cold because then you have nothing but time and you just want to stay in and write. So, yeah, I'm also very productive in the winter months. Can you talk a little bit about your writing process? Do you take the lead or is it a collaborative effort? I do most of it and then I'll send it to the guys and we'll talk about it and they'll give me some feedback and then I'll just go back to my hole and work stuff out. And who are these uh, these guys you speak of? Uh, we got Mickey Alfano on the bass. Give it up for Mickey. And we got Charles Murlowski on guitar. And then our drummer somewhere around here, Mark Hansen. Thank you for joining us today. This has been yeah, uh, real and righteous, nice and uh, we love y'all's sound, so thanks for popping by. Thank you. That was Night Moves joining us for Live at Lake Effect. Be sure to head to wuwm.com and our YouTube and social media channels to see them performing three original songs in the Lake Effect Surf Shop. That video was done by Visionary Studios. Milwaukee musician Trapper Shep and myself are the executive producers of Live at Lake Effect. Sound engineering is done by WUWM's Jason Reavy. New episodes of Live at Lake Effect will be released monthly, and be sure to check out our past episodes featuring Rhett Miller, Dead Horses, and Milwaukee's own Raina, if you haven't already. And that's Lake Effect for today. I'm Audrey Nowakowski. If you've missed any of today's conversations or would like to take Lake Effect on the go, simply download our podcast. Search for Lake Effect wherever you get your podcasts to listen to all of our shows on demand. Last Wednesday, we held our first Lake Effect on-site after a long hiatus in the Walkers Point neighborhood, where we learned about what makes that neighborhood special. Tomorrow on Lake Effect, you'll get to hear that live show. Tune in tomorrow at noon on Lake Effect, right here on listener-supported 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. Straight.